1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, we interview the author or editor of a new book in Genocide Studies. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Peter Hayes and John Roth to the show. Both John and Peter have a long and distinguished career as historians and uh, students of the Holocaust. This. T- Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, we interview the author or editor of a new book in Genocide Studies. Today I'm pleased to welcome Peter Hayes and John Roth to the show. Both John and Peter have a long and distinguished career as historians and uh, students of the Holocaust. This time they've teamed up to produce an extraordinary reference work titled The Oxford Handbook of Holocaust Studies. The book is a wonderful work that truly I think captures the state of our thinking about an understanding of the Holocaust as we know at this moment. I found it personally a wonderfully useful tool in preparing to teach my course this semester and I recommend it to everybody. I'm thrilled to have both John and Peter on the show today. John is returning to New Books and Genocide Studies, uh, and this is Peter's first time with us. So, John and Peter, welcome back and welcome. I'm really glad you're with us, and I'd like to start our conversation just by asking you to talk a little bit about who you are and how you became interested in the Holocaust and how you uh, launched on an an academic career uh, investigating it. And, And Peter, why don't we start with you?
2: Wow. Um, no one's ever the best authority on his own life. Um, <laughs> I, think the, I think the answer in my case begins with the fact that I'm a child of the 60s, and I was in high school in the 1960s. I grew up watching news reports of policemen seeking dogs on little children in the South and watching Freedom Rides and so on. And so, for me, the issues of racial violence were... Uh, Part and parcel of growing up as an American in those years. And I think from there, then there was a series of accidents that occurred. My sister married into a German family. Um, I grew up in a town where I had a great many good friends who were Jews. So I had all kinds of things in my life that made me curious about this element of history. I learned German from the family of my, that my sister married into, and so then I had the tools to apply my interest in racial violence to that particular aspect of history, and and as the saying goes, the rest is history. That's what I've done ever since. Hmm. And John? Uh, As a graduate student
0: in the uh, mid-1960s, I was uh, training in philosophy. Um, I took a position at uh, Claremont McKenna College in California and my career was moving along uh, in a rather conventional path as a, a philosopher with an interest in American pragmatism in particular. And then uh, following the suggestion of a former teacher of mine uh, around the year 1970, um, I began to read uh, seriously the works of uh, Elie Wiesel, And that experience became a kind of uh, turning point in my life, both professionally and personally, um, so that I now uh, speak of myself sometimes as a philosopher who got tripped up by history, and in particular (laughs) by the history of the Holocaust. And that changed my life, and so for 40 years or so I've been working on uh, the Holocaust and genocide and human rights issues. My training, as I mentioned, is in philosophy. But with the help of uh, friends like Peter, uh, I've been able to immerse myself and learn a little bit of history as we go along.
1: And both of you have written extensively about the subject. How did you decide to take on the, proje- uh, the project of a, a, of a handbook in Holocaust studies?
0: Well, maybe I can start with this. Um, I got an inquiry one day. I think it came by email from uh, an editor at Oxford University Press. And uh, the inquiry was a kind of general one um, asking about the feasibility of uh, a handbook on Holocaust studies that would be part of a larger uh, enterprise at Oxford University Press where they were developing a series of of these handbooks, as they call them, in in a large number of fields. So I responded on this and said uh, along the way that I might even be interested in, in working on such a thing if they thought it was a good idea. Well, the answer came back fairly quickly that, yes, they were interested in doing this, and uh, they would like it if I might have a hand in it. And I replied right away and said, yes, that would be great, but if we do it, we have to have a historian. So um, the the negotiations went forward, and I very quickly suggested Peter Hayes as the person they ought to turn to, which, uh, which they did. And uh, fairly quickly then, we were uh, teamed up, something that I have uh, valued and and enjoyed immensely.
2: Yeah, and on my part, the answer is a little shorter. John Roth asked me, and I said yes.
1: So, uh, Peter, John Roth asks you to do a handbook. What did you... How did you understand what a handbook would be? And and, and and then as you two fleshed that out, how do you see what what a handbook should be? And is there a distinction between a handbook and a dictionary or an encyclopedia? What
2: did you see it for? Yeah, there is a, uh, there is a distinction between those categories. And we worked it out, I think, largely in the doing. But what we knew from the beginning is that we wanted to provide something that would give people an overview of the field, but be accessible enough that it could also be a point of entry into the field. If someone was just starting out, maybe a first-year graduate student or a person who had seen a lot of films on the subject or something and just wanted to get a way of orienting him or herself Mm -hmm. in the field, then we wanted to provide a comprehensive work that would allow that. And so I think that was what we thought initially. And then, of course, the distinction comes when you're producing the actual chapters. Both John and I really rapidly found we were on the same wavelength about this. We wanted chapters that would provide a comprehensive view of a subject, but we didn't want them to read like an encyclopedia article. We wanted them Mm -hmm. also to have an interpretive line that would make them interesting. That is, they would have a point of view. And so that's the balance that we tried to strike with each piece.
0: And we tried also, Kelly, to uh, have as an element in the uh, essays some um, anticipation of where the field might need to go next. Uh, This came out more strongly in some of the chapters than in others, but uh, it fitted a bit with what Peter said about how each entry uh, welcomed the perspective of the writer. So we were looking not only for their take on the, the subject matter in the field, where it had come from and where it was sitting presently, but also where the author thought things might need to go next.
1: And so presumably you metaphorically sat down, whether it's through Skype or over phone, or whether you actually physically sat down in a conference room or a coffee shop and and started to think about how you were going to organize that. I'm I'm curious about how this worked. How did you how did you try and conceptualize what would be an appropriate kind of set of labels and and and, and divisions and organizations that made this book make sense?
2: Peter, you ought to start on this,
0: and we can both add, I think.
2: I think we can both contribute something on this. Our first objective was to provide something that bridged the diverse subfields in Holocaust studies. So we we weren't so much trying to fill a gap as we were trying to um, have a work that ranged across all the variations. We thought most of the existing works... Either were predominantly historical in their focus, or predominantly literary in their focus, or predominantly concerned with uh, cultural after-effects of the Holocaust and so forth. And we wanted to provide a book that would span all of that. As I recall, you know, we did a lot by email and exchange of drafts and so forth. And we started with a somewhat conventional. Notion of you know what did we know people had written what subfields had they contributed to and so forth and then gradually we arrived at the five part framework that we worked out which I think it was pretty innovative um, mm-hmm. and we worked out uh, a way in which we could group the various subtopics under those five parts so that we both told the prehistory of the Holocaust the history of it in itself and then the after effects, the consequences, the the aftermath, uh and the impact on I think other fields of study as well. We have a number of chapters about the impact of the Holocaust on the humanities, the social sciences, human rights law, education, and so forth. So so that's what we were trying to do.
0: I think one of the things that uh we agreed on early on was the um, the need to, and I'll use this term because it appears in the book, to disaggregate, uh, to kind of uh, take apart and to uh, put into greater relief and and detail uh, the subfields, as Peter mentioned, so Mm -hmm. that uh, uh, the conventional kind of uh, perpetrator, bystander, victim, Uh, trinity that had had been conventional and and had dominated in the field of Holocaust studies for quite a long time was something that we felt um, needed to be revisited, uh, revised, and and disaggregated. So, for example, I remember the day that, uh, Peter, you came up with the idea for the second part of the book, which uh, was to focus, as we, we have it, on protagonists. The, the idea that there were many, many players in uh, in the Holocaust—people who, who were active, including—and this is important, uh, Jews themselves, including children, including women, uh, many, many people as agents. I think this was one of the things that we that we pushed a bit in our interpretive scheme to try to bring a sense of agency into the analysis.
1: Yeah. Um one of the labels you, you you use uh for the first section actually of the book is is enablers. Uh talking about uh what other people have called precursors or antecedents or or used other words for. I'm for the the Holocaust itself. I'm curious why you chose the word enablers.
2: Um. I I think the answer to that is because we thought the term was elastic enough to capture Mm. the reality. Uh, I think if you call call something a precursor, you're making assertions about cause and effect that um, are tighter in some cases than in others. And so we thought that enablers was a term that captured the way in which something made something possible but did not necessarily cause it. Um, it 's a subtle distinction, but i I mm-hmm. think that is probably what was behind the choice and I that would add
0: too terms? that yeah, I would add that that the enablers also uh, captured this uh, sense of agency that we were getting at because mm. uh, the essays uh, repeatedly uh, move away from uh, abstraction to uh, to talk about uh, People who actually (laughs) advanced colonialism, let's say, or who were players in the scientific uh, um, world that that provided part of the context out of which the Holocaust emerged. So we got both of those elements, the the kind of emphasis on persons, but also the emphasis on uh, uh, conditions that were in place that uh, made it possible for this genocide to emerge.
1: Each of you has written a chapter in the volume. Um, I'd like to take just a few minutes to give you a chance to talk about your own work. And we'll start with Peter. Uh, and you write about plunder and restitution. Um, can you talk a little bit about the way the Nazis um, planned to and did treat Jewish resources, whether monetary or uh, physical resources or, or labor Before the war, and then I guess during the war, and how this fits into the broader question of Nazi exploitation of of, quote unquote enemy resources.
2: Sure. Um, I mean, the starting point for an answer is to recognize how the Nazis defined uh, possessions that Jews had. And they basically, and, and the Nazis and their allies in other countries as well, most anti Semites defined almost all Jewish wealth as essentially stolen. They, they they were convinced that the assets that Jews had accumulated since the emancipation of European jewry had been um, were ill gotten gains, and therefore they didn't regard themselves as actually um, stealing from Jews. they regarded themselves as repossessing the goods that rightfully belonged to the majority population. And this was as true of anti Semites in Romania and Hungary uh, as it was true within Germany with the Nazis. And so this was the driving element behind it. And even before the Nazis reached a decision that, the series of decisions that ultimately produced murder, uh, they were determined to strip Jews of everything they had. Uh, it was a major contradiction in their policy in the 1930s because, on the one hand, they wanted to drive Jews out of Germany. But on the other hand, they wanted to make sure that most Jews left panelists, which reduced the willingness of other countries to accept them. So there was a kind of contradiction built into this. But from the very early stages, uh, Nazis developed ways of confiscating the wealth of Jews in Germany, initially through the tax system and then increasingly through forced sales of their property and so forth, and then culminating, as you mentioned, in the system of forced labor, which up until nineteen forty one in germany in some cases as late as nineteen forty three uh... was actually paid though it was paid at very low rates and then of course under the concentration system became a uh, concentration camp system became a program of slave labor in that um... jewish labor was paid for Uh, if a company wanted uh... jewish laborers or if the state used jewish laborers it paid the SS for those people but they were not themselves paid So that's the way the system developed over time. And it became um, a quite thorough system. Uh, The confiscation of Jewish wealth in occupied Poland, for instance, was pretty near total. And uh, it it amounted to substantial returns for the German state. Um, The concentration camp system was itself a means of making a profit uh, insofar as we can calculate this. Auschwitz earned the profit of 100%. That is, the receipts that Auschwitz made from the seizure of Jewish uh, labor and property came to about double the cost of constructing and operating Auschwitz. So there's an extreme example.
1: Um, yeah, let, let me ask what – your past work is, is at least somewhat – or, or perhaps largely in the area of, of, of business history and how that relates to the Holocaust. What kind of skills, and, and, and th- there are other historians more recently who have, have, or other recent historians who have also addressed this kind of question using similar kind of tools. I'm curious, what can historians who who do have kind of a deep familiarity with business and economics and the way businesses work, how has that changed? our approach to studying these kind of subjects over the past decade or two?
2: Well, I think that if you study any subset of institutions in Nazi Germany, if you're looking at business or you're looking at the bureaucracy or you're looking at any particular organizational structure, you realize that these uh, organizations are caught in a kind of force field of power of their own. They're not always Mm -hmm. able to determine uh, as they would like, what they would do and so forth. They look at which way the wind is blowing and what the direction of events in the society is, and they adapt insofar as they feel they must in order to continue performing what they regard as their principal function, which is making money and returning. Mm. Uh, returns to the to the stockholders and so forth. So you, you perceive that these organizations operate in with what they increasingly regard as imperatives, and these imperatives are destructive of, of ethical principles. Uh, so that's one part of what uh, the experience with corporations mm-hmm. gave me. But of course, the other part that comes from that is I'm uh, I'm unusual among historians because I'm kind of a numbers guy. And uh, I I follow the numbers, and I'm careful to try to see what statistical information about Nazi Germany can tell us, Um, particularly with regard to the Holocaust. One of the fascinating things, and it has a lot to do with why restitution had a very rocky road after 1945, um, the enormous theft of Jewish wealth was, as I just said, enormous. But it came to about 10%. Of the plunder that Nazi Germany extracted from occupied Europe, that is ninety percent of what the Nazis stole came out of things like the National Bank of Poland, or the national, excuse me, the National Bank of the Netherlands, um, the National Bank of Greece, various places like that, as well as from confiscations of the property of non-Jews. So this, when you when you take that that statistical relationship, ten percent to ninety percent that helps to understand why after the war so few people in these occupied countries could see what had happened to the jews as distinct from what had happened to the rest of them and it took decades for people to begin to disentangle this and see what aspects of the holocaust were particularly fierce in the uh, in the toll on jews as opposed to the general toll of nazi occupation
1: yeah, so 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 one question before we kind of follow that thread and so when the Nazis whether corporately or individually are are exploiting or seizing resources and as you say is is that process or the way of thinking about those resources is there simply a numerical distinction in other words that the Nazis are basically treating all of these resources equally uh, and it just so happens, just because of the way wealth is and people are distributed across the continent, that ninety percent is non-Jewish, or or is there a an ideological, um, or to what degree is the ideological understanding of Jews and Jewish resources duplicated when they're looking uh, to exploit the property and resources of other peoples?
2: It varies a lot from place to place. Um, in in a place like occupied Belgium or Holland. Uh, the Nazis were quick to seize all raw materials that were valuable to them, and they didn't much care about who owned them, and they didn't take compensation for it and so forth. But otherwise, they were cautious about non-Jewish property. Um, they did not seize, uh, let's say, privately owned or, or mm. stock corporations in occupied Holland or Belgium because they wanted the cooperation of the local elites. In Poland, it was entirely different. They seized everything that belonged to the Polish state, they seized everything that belonged to Jews, and they, over time, expected that they would gradually squeeze the Poles out of these areas, some of which they had designated for German settlement, as in the parts of Poland that were next to Germany, and part, others of which they ultimately saw as living space for the German people. But even the attitude toward Slavs varied greatly. Uh, they were the, the Nazis were pro-Bulgarian, for instance, or a Slavic people, but vigorously anti-Polish. Uh, Hitler himself do, drew distinctions among Ukrainians. Uh, so there was there was not the same uniform hostile attitude that there was toward the Jews, all of whom, by virtue, by definition, and not the ideology, had to disappear.
1: So, and I'm going to blindside you this year, blindside you with this year a little bit, and I'm going to do so shamelessly. uh, And I've asked something of the same question in past interviews. So what is is this case study or this area of of, uh, Holocaust studies? What could you say about the broader Nazi project based on this understanding of of the Nazi actions toward people's resources? Or, Or can't you say anything about a broader Nazi project?
2: Well, I think you can say something, uh, I'm not sure how profound it is, but the, uh, <laughs> I can certainly say is that Nazism had very little to offer anyone in Europe who was not German. Mm-hmm. And the only people who could benefit from Nazi success and expansion were those nations that uh, allied themselves with the Nazis, the Hungarians, the Romanians, the Croatians. They had something to gain by Nazi victory. But... Almost no other nation, uh, Italy, an, an ally, but almost no other nation had anything to gain. the The Nazis were utterly selfish in their sense of the what it was a, what is proper in using resources and what was not. Uh, after all, this is an ideology that whose fundamental premise was the law of the jungle. We are all inevitably involved in constant struggle for uh, what Hitler called uh, our daily bread. And that meant that you were in constant struggle with other nationalities for finite resources. So the goal of Nazi expansionism was always to seize as many of those resources as possible for the German people and no one else.
1: So this is the context that people faced immediately and then after the war and then as time went on and the war uh, receded into the background. Can you summarize how people tried to address this issue of what to do with the goods and labor that had been stolen from other people.
2: Yeah, there were a couple of impediments right after 1945. The first is that the tradition in international law was that people don't recover against foreign governments. Hmm. Uh, you, the way your state recovers against a foreign state So the tradition in international law was that if the Nazis occupied the Netherlands and stole a great many assets, then the government of the Netherlands would would negotiate with the successive government in Germany to obtain a financial restitution for that. That was very difficult after 1945 because the continent was so damaged by the war. Uh, Fear of the advantage that communism might take of economic conditions was so high. That almost no Western European government, for instance, would dare to ask Germany for an amount of money really equal to what the Germans had done to them. Hmm. And as a result, there were these political constraints. But the other thing was, of course, that uh, nations, there's there's a term usually used in this called the Vichy syndrome. And by that, it's a reference to the the collaborationist government of, of unoccupied France between 1940 and 1943, the Vichy, which was headquartered in the city of Vichy. And the Vichy syndrome basically is a notion that somehow the Germans made us do everything. And so what this happened after the war is, for instance, people in the Netherlands in 1948 were very slow to recognize that, for instance, all of the stocks that had been sold, that had been taken from Jews in the Netherlands. Remember, more than uh, 80% of the Jews of the Netherlands died in the Holocaust. Those stocks were not carried off to Nazi Germany. They were sold on the stock exchanges of Amsterdam, Hmm. and they were mostly bought by Dutch people. And the Vichy syndrome is a way in which, uh, sort of the term that covers the way in which occupied countries deluded themselves about how much they had benefited from the dispossession of the Jews, the Eastern European version of this, of course, is that most of the people who ended up living in the houses from which Jews had been deported and killed, most of those people were uh, non Jewish citizens of those countries they were Germans, and as a result, there was a great deal of implicit benefiting from what had been done to the jews and it was very hard for these countries to face up to that and then to face up to the monetary responsibilities that flow from it. Uh, Particularly hard in Eastern Europe because of course uh, the communist governments just absolutely refused to do that. But in Western Europe it was very difficult because people deluded themselves.
1: And so how did that work itself out over the 50 or 75 years following the end of the war?
2: Well, outside of Germany, it didn't really begin to work itself out until the last, I would basically say, 18 years or so. And in the course of the 1990s, a lot of information about what had been taken from Jews um, was was brought to light by virtue of a development in American law called the class action suit, by which people who lived in the United States, uh, who had been, let us say, for, uh, slave laborers in Nazi Germany, could band together, and sue German courts that had, uh, I'm sorry, German companies that had operations in the United States could sue these in American courts for recovery of the equivalent of what had been taken from them, and that would be recovered from the American assets of the German property. This was a rather new development in American law that mm-hmm. it developed during the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. and It became part of Holocaust uh, litigation in the 90s. Then I think the publicity from all of that made other countries look much more closely at their records, and the passage of time made it possible, because they were, with every passing decade, there were fewer people in prominent positions in uh, formerly occupied countries who had played somewhat ambiguous roles during that period. And it's important to remember that the president of France in the 1980s, Francois Mitterrand was an official of the Vichy government during the mm-hmm. ni- 1940 and 41. Uh, until these people departed the scene, it was very hard for countries to face up to their historical responsibility. But once the, um, the publicity became greater, people looked more and more at the ways in which um, property had been stolen from Jews and so forth, then there was a kind of um, snowball of attention to this. And now we have had uh, developments such as, uh, I referred to that, um, the sale of the stocks on the Amsterdam Stock Exchange. Well, about five years ago, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange collectively paid a large restitution settlement with the Jewish community of of the Netherlands.
1: It seems ironic that, and and perhaps sad, that if, if what was necessary for onlookers or bystanders or whatever term we want to use to to or, or perhaps even collaborators to pass on before states could really deal with this. the inevitable consequence of that is that the people from whom these goods were taken were also passing on at the same time. That process is probably about done. Where are we at now in a world or, or is 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 this debate? or process largely over with most people who were alive in the period having passed on?
2: I think it's largely over with regard to German action and so forth. I do not think it is largely over with regard to places where no thoroughgoing effort of restitution has been made, and those are predominantly the countries of Eastern Europe, Poland, Romania, Hungary, mm-hmm. Uh, where there are some, um, there are outstanding questions, and uh, of course they're different questions. Poland was an occupied state, did not have its own government, but Romania and Hungary had governments that were, to varying degrees, at varying times, closely allied with Nazi Germany, and uh, and they and they had substantially, they had large Jewish communities, and so there are issues there that remain to be adjudicated. Uh, I don't know whether they will be, but that remains a possibility.
1: So John, let me turn to you, and I do so warily because I'm a historian who's now going to try and talk about ethics with a philosopher, so be kind to me. Uh, you start out your essay by saying that the Holocaust didn't destroy ethics,
0: but it did it
1: tremendous harm. Could you talk about what you mean by that?
0: Sure. Uh, before I plunge directly into that, though, I want, I want to uh, add a comment or two about um, Peter's reflection Please. on uh, sure. plunder and restitution which have a lot to do with with the ethics area actually um, and the comments I want to make have to do uh, with with our project in doing this handbook Peter's essay on uh, plunder and restitution uh, appears in the last section of the book which is on the after effects and uh, that's significant because, as he was suggesting in his comments on uh, restitution, uh, the issue of restitution has come to the fore. Uh, well, it came to the it came to the fore in the immediate post-war uh, era in some ways, but it really has had its heyday in more recent times, and it's mm-hmm. ongoing. So uh, as we were thinking about the book itself, I think one of the things that we were uh, interested in showing and illustrating is how uh, the field of Holocaust studies, and indeed the very understanding of the Holocaust itself, is still uh, in, in, in process. There, there hasn't been closure, there hasn't been completeness, uh, things continue to play out. So that uh, plunder and restitution becomes uh, not only a topic that's historical, but it's a topic that is current and fits very much into the into the aftereffects side of um, things as we as we organize the book. So now back to your your good question about um, about ethics and what the Holocaust uh, did to ethics. In my view. I argue that the Holocaust did did harm to ethics, um, did not destroy it, but uh, but damaged it. It's not the only event that's done that, but it, it the Holocaust it, it did so in a in a major way. I think on the damage side. Now, first, maybe a word about uh, how I understand what ethics is. I think ethics is in play wherever we use language that includes categories like ought, right, wrong, justice, injustice, these terms that uh, suggest uh, that we're making value judgments about things that people do or that. Governments or states do, and there there are at least three ways in which uh, those topics can be explored. One is just to look culturally about you know what what a person or what a what a culture believes with respect to what is right and wrong or just or unjust. Uh, another way is to you know analyze those beliefs to look to see where do they come from, what's their historical development over time, how they evolved, things of that sort. That's a second way of thinking about ethics. And a third way is really uh, the normative sense of whether there really is, uh, at the end of the day, a real difference between what is right, what is wrong, uh, what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. The Holocaust uh, has impact in in all of these areas. Uh, And I would identify three ways, I think, in which the the Holocaust damaged ethics. One is that I think the Holocaust couldn't have happened without an ethical collapse. There's a long history of uh, normative thinking that suggests that you really shouldn't treat people the way they got treated during this genocide. But in fact, they were treated in genocidal ways uh, during this period and in many others that have happened since. And so wherever you have these uh, mass atrocities that take place, there, there is, I think, something that we can call a kind of failure of the ethical Secondly, in the uh, Nazi regime, uh, there was something of an ethic. It's even been labeled by uh, some scholars as a Nazi ethic. Peter mentioned earlier that there was a kind of law of the jungle uh, approach within Nazism, that everything was a struggle for survival and you had to uh, act accordingly. But within that, understanding of things, there still were senses of what was right and what was wrong to do. And in the Nazi regime, it turned out that it was right and even good to um, eliminate the Jews. That was not considered to be something that was wrong to do or something that was contrary to an ethical perspective, but rather was regarded as something that ought to happen, so there was a way in which uh, Nazism uh, co-opted um, and I would say perverted ethical categories for for their own ends, and this has led I think to some problems about you know how we think about what it what is ethical and what is right and what is wrong, particularly when we get to a third area which has to do with uh, the grounding of our ethical thinking, what what we think really constitutes uh, normative differences. The Holocaust, I think, did harm to ethics because um, the, the way in which Nazism and the genocide it perpetrated went on and on and on and was vast in its scope. I think this uh, had the effect of undercutting confidence about the degree to which we could say that we live in a universe or a world that has a moral structure to it. Traditionally, we would have argued uh, that uh, there was a structure of that kind, and it might be present through uh, our capacity to think rationally about uh, normative questions, or it might have been rooted in an understanding of uh, natural law or it might have been understood in terms of religious categories, things of that kind. But uh, I think one of the impacts of the Holocaust was that it undermined confidence in any of those ways, of those traditional ways of thinking about where our normative uh, categories and our judgments and our, our senses of what ultimately at the end of the day is right and what is wrong, that, that those things uh, are more fragile, more fragmented, uh, as a result of the Holocaust, and I think we're, you know, still in a process of trying to um, think through and recover those those fragments. Some people would argue that uh, the Holocaust itself has become something of um, what is called a negative absolute. That is, it tells you what. <laughs> What is wrong, what what you must not do, what you should not do, things of that kind i 'm um, a little uh, less sanguine than some about uh, about that. I think that the fact that we live in a um, a world that has uh, a genocidal quality to it, as your course, Kelly is exploring this fall, um, suggests that we can't place a lot of optimism and hope on the idea that the holocaust teaches us in some convincing incredible way that never again uh... should these things happen or should they be allowed to happen or should we stand by while they do so in all of these ways i think ethics has been harmed and damaged it isn't dead uh... we need an ethical sensibility more than ever i think and we have to Scramble a bit um, find uh find the resources and the um, ways of thinking and acting that that may help us as we go forward, but the Holocaust did nothing I think to inspire confidence about the future of ethics
1: yeah you you talk about us living in a genocidal world, and of course. Uh, We're at the beginning of the semester here at Newman, and in trying to open up some of these questions for my students this morning before the interview, um, I asked them if the United States should intervene in Syria, and we got in this rather lengthy discussion of the ethics of humanitarian intervention and the nature of sovereignty and so on. Uh, But Syria is only, as you suggest, the last in a long series of mass killings, uh, some which, of which have been called genocide. Some, some, some don't maybe fit quite the definition. But I'm wondering, in terms of philosophy and ethics, to what degree the Holocaust stands alone when they, philosophers address ethics, or to what is it an archetype? Is it simply one of a, a series of blows to this idea of ethics? How, how do philosophers try to to respond to these to the world we live in?
0: Well, I've, uh, as a result of my uh, work in the field of Holocaust studies, I've also engaged in a kind of lover's quarrel with my <laughs> discipline of philosophy. Um, philosophy is much more engaged with uh, what's going on in the world than, than it used to be 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, but it's still, uh, as a as an approach... Uh, has not engaged with events like the Holocaust as uh, seriously as it might. I always think philosophy is at its best when it's deeply immersed in the historical. And uh, there are factors and elements in the discipline of philosophy that tend to make it uh, more abstract, not as engaged with things that are happening on the ground, uh, things that have happened uh, historically. And I think that um, philosophy, as I say, is better when it's, it's engaged with that. It doesn't follow that if it were uh, more engaged, that uh, philosophers or philosophy would produce the answers that we need to questions like, you know, should we engage militarily uh, in Syria today? I, I don't hold a view about philosophy that suggests it has a uh, crystal ball that can can give us those kinds of answers, but I think the uh, kinds of questions, the kinds of inquiry that characterize philosophy at its best are, are always helpful when we're we're thinking about these uh, dilemmas.
1: So, and I know I'm asking you uh, or posing for you an impossible task, but could you say maybe in a couple minutes, just briefly summarize ways in which philosophers have tried to respond to this challenge that the Holocaust poses to ethics and you, you've hinted at some of this before, but can you elaborate on some of these things
0: Well, I think um, the the questions that philosophy asks uh, remain uh, vital and important and and relevant so um, even though we don 't have Answers in our hip pockets to present. Mm-hmm. Uh, philosophers can always uh, have a place, an important place at the at the table of inquiry, when they they ask and insist that we have to think through is what we're doing right. Uh, are we serving uh, interests that are good? Are we uh, doing what we ought to do? And I think. Whenever uh, we're faced with mass atrocities, either as we, you know, think back on them historically and are, are trying to evaluate what people did or didn't do, or as we're thinking about current situations and dilemmas, uh, it, it never hurts to uh, bring those questions out and to, to pause a bit and to think about them carefully. It may help us to avoid uh, acting hastily. It may uh, help us to avoid uh, errors and mistakes that we, that we might want to make. Uh, it may even, as we're looking back historically, uh, complicate our judgments about what people did or did not do in the past so that we think twice before we uh, race to a judgment about whether this person should have done X instead of Y. Uh, so it can be helpful in uh, a historical sensibility, I think, to raise these questions, and it can be helpful to us as we think about our our current circumstances and the future that we face. So I place a lot of stock still in the questions that, that philosophy brings to the mm-hmm. table.
1: Mm-hmm. And so we've had the luxury of talking to each of you at length about your contributions. There's no way we can do that for everyone. So instead, and I'll ask Peter to start with this, I'm wondering what you can say about the state of Holocaust studies and the questions that that are asked by people who study the Holocaust and, and interpretations. What can you say you learned about that from this work as a whole, kind of? looking at the chapters as a collective whole rather than individuals. Peter?
2: Well, I think that, you know the driving questions in the field are really two. Um, the first is, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. How could the Holocaust have occurred? And the second is, what have we made of it? What have we learned from it? And so forth. I think with regard to the first part of it, first question, how could this happen? Um, one of the, I, I think that we've largely succeeded in answering the German dimension of that question. And I think the essays in the volume show that the tremendous energy and uh, research time has been devoted to this. And I think we can provide a pretty good overall account of how the decisions to murder the Jews were made, what kind of people did it, and with what sort of mindset and motives, and so on. Now the action is moving uh, further east. We need we are looking much more closely at the places where the murders overwhelmingly occurred. Um, it's easy for us in the United States to forget uh, certain truths about the Second World War and the Holocaust. One is that um, we may have marched into Germany from the West in 1945, but the, great, the overwhelming majority of German casualties in the Second World War occurred on the Eastern Front. Similarly, we think of the massacre of Jews in Western Europe and so forth. But 75 percent of the people killed in the Holocaust came from only three countries. They came from Poland, Lithuania, and what was the Soviet Union. Uh, in fact, most of them were not only from those places, but were killed in those places. And. So we're now, finally, with the, with the fall of the Iron Curtain and the uh, increasing ability of Americans to uh, read those languages, we're now doing more and more research in these areas. So the real areas where the new questions are to be answered have to do with those great chunks of Eastern Europe where the murders occurred. Um, Ukraine, Soviet Union, Romania, Hungary, Poland, and so on. And that, I think, is one of the real um, exciting areas where we're learning new things all the time. And we're learning also just to recontextualize what we know. I think of a, certainly the most brilliant recent contribution to the field is Tim Snyder's book called Borderlands, which mm. tells us a great deal about how this could happen in that part of the world. So that's that's the kind of where we are. And then I think that second big question, what have we made of it? That is in itself an open-ended question. Uh, the challenges of memory and interpretation will continue. There'll be rephrased with each generation because that's what generations do when they look at at history. They reanalyze the relevance of events that occurred before to that current generation, and they reformulate questions. It's very difficult to anticipate which way that will go, but I think it will be a continually productive process.
1: John, reaction? Disagreements? Um,
0: Well, I agree with with Peter's um, assessment there. Um, I, would, I would add uh, the following kinds of things uh, that I learned or that I, I understood better. I think as a result of uh, working on this book, um, one of them was is simply the vastness of the Holocaust itself and the field of Holocaust studies. Okay. Um, there, there is you know so much. Uh, ranging in in the Holocaust studies area from the the, the historical analysis to the wide range of topics that we included in the book under the the heading of after effects in the last part of the volume. So the vastness of it. And then uh, the second thing for me is um, that the book keeps alive the, the question of What is the Holocaust, after all? How do we think of it? Uh, Do we think of it just as an event that took place uh, during the hegemony of of, uh, Nazi Germany? Or do we need to think uh, of the question as having a much, much greater reach and expanse, uh, not only chronologically, but also in terms of our consciousness, our awareness, and even our, our ethical sensibilities, things of that kind? Um, The third thing that came out for me in the book um, is that I I really think there's no closure, uh, there's no completeness to the work. I expect that the field of Holocaust studies will continue to grow and expand. Uh, I think our handbook uh, captures a moment in that process and maybe points uh, toward the future somewhat and has had a hand in um, establishing the field as um, a, as a, a scholarly enterprise. There were particular essays from which I learned a lot, and I might mention just three of them because it kind mm-hmm. of fits with the picture I'm trying to sketch here of the vastness of the Holocaust. Um, I learned a lot from uh, Nicholas Stargardt's chapter on children, an area that, um, well, he's one of the the scholars who has has opened that up. Um, It wasn't a topic 25, 30 years ago, um, even 15 years ago, but now there's a a subfield that uh, focuses on children in the Holocaust. I learned a lot from that one. Uh, Peter Fritzke wrote a very interesting entry on German documents and diaries that uh, added to my understanding on the question of what did the German people know about what was going on? He's documented uh, that their knowledge was probably much greater than we we thought earlier. So I learned a lot from that. And then I learned a lot from um, Brett Verbs' essay on music, uh, we don 't often associate music and the Holocaust very much, but uh, there it is there's another uh, area that um, is, is is one for continued study and research. Music has a factor during the time of the Holocaust, but also music uh, in its role as a factor in memory and memorialization and uh, recollection of, of that um, genocide. So uh, both in the aggregate, in, in terms of being involved with this large-scale thing, there was much to learn uh, from, from my side, and then as we got into the particular contributions from the scholars who wrote the articles, I found myself uh, very often learning a great deal even though I'd been working in this field for forty years, there were there were things that that were new to me.
2: Yeah,
1: I, I, we're running out of time, but I, I briefly I'd like to touch on a couple broader things. Uh, first, both of you in in kind of the introduction as we started the interview talked about being alive in the '60s and the influence that experience had on you. You've met. I assume you've met all of these authors, at least electronically, and I suspect you know many of them. Uh, Some of them are your age. Others of them are considerably younger. Uh, Do you get a sense that there is a generational difference in the way people approach these studies who are younger, who did not? Perhaps experience the generation of the '60s, whether the uh, civil rights struggles in the United States or the arguments about what my father, what did your father do in the war in Europe? Is there a generational difference that you see or, or, or not?
0: Well, I'll start maybe uh, this way. I think that one of the things that I see uh, that's generationally different is that um, young scholars younger than myself. Uh, have had uh, the benefit of being able to study the Holocaust in their formative uh, scholarly lives in a in a, a formal way that was that was simply not available uh, at the time that I was entering into this field, and so I think maybe more than the era in which um, culturally I grew up, um, the difference that I see is. Um, in the in the training that people have had, in the accessibility they've had to uh, work with scholars in graduate school and in other settings to uh, be trained to do this work that we call Holocaust studies. That that's I think the single biggest difference I see in myself when I look at younger scholars who are you know 20, 30, uh, even 40 years younger than I am.
2: I think, Kelly, I, I should add that we weren't sure, we didn't have an operating hypothesis on this, but we thought that it would be a good idea to have mostly younger people than us writing in this volume. And so for, I think that John and I are, and maybe Chris Browning are probably the oldest people who contributed to this volume, and, and we went looking for the next generation uh, because we wanted to find out if the what the next generation has to say on the subject. The The... The first generation of American, North American scholarship on this subject has been so influential that we wanted to see what was the uh, state of the art in the hands of the next group.
1: And did you find commonalities or or did nothing jump out at you?
2: No, nothing did jump out at me. I mean, I think... Hmm. what was reassuring—I um, probably shouldn't use that word—was <laughs> was how good the work is, and uh-huh. therefore, I mean, I, I really felt that this is a field that has matured and developed and come into its own. Uh, it's always attracted very bright people because of the urgency of the questions that the field presents, and I think it continues to do that, which is a which is a really uh, satisfying thing to know.
1: It is, but it raises a question in my mind, and I asked Dan Stone this uh, in a previous interview. The bibliographies, if you just add all of the bibliographies up in in your handbook, you come up with a very lengthy list. That's just the tiniest tip of the iceberg of writing on the Holocaust, um, which is enormous. The number of the, the number of books and articles and studies and uh, other kinds of ways of presenting what people know is just enormous. How do you actually start to study the Holocaust with this much written about it?
0: With the Oxford Kelly, Airborne. there was an article that I read read uh, <laughs> in the Economist uh, this week, actually August twenty fourth. Um, the the article in the Economist says that there uh, uh, in the American Library of Congress there are some 16,000 books on the Holocaust, and wow. more than two thirds of them were published in the past two decades. Yeah. Now, I haven't fact-checked that to see, but uh, if that's if that's correct, but it, it's an interesting uh, statement, at least probably uh, close to being accurate, if not you know right on the on the money. So you're right. I don't think any single person can. Get their head completely around uh, this field, uh, but a work like the one that uh, Peter and I attempted to produce here uh, at least takes steps in the direction of enabling um, people to uh, get get the overview that we were talking about at the at the top of the hour um, and it directs people to where they could look for uh, things that they might want to follow up on to uh, to pursue particular interests that they may have.
2: I think yeah, and, and it's not an unusual problem. Um, the, mm-hmm. the great subjects attract enormous amounts of attention, and so I think it's daunting now to think about starting to write a book on the French Revolution. Sure, it's, it's daunting to think uh, to write a book on the causes of World War One. Uh, which many people are doing with the anniversary coming out <laughs> next year. Uh, the great subjects are subjects that become um, examined from almost every possible angle. And so it's a challenge, uh, but it, does, it is one of the reasons why we did this book, was to give people a direct route into the heart of the issues.
1: Well, and I think it's you, you all did a wonderful job, and I want to say how much I appreciate this kind of avenue into the study. I've learned a lot from the book. I think it's wonderful. I heartily recommend it. We've taken up a lot of your time, um, so I wonder if, just as a way of closing, you might—and we'll start with Peter—just say a little bit about what you're what you're working on now.
2: Oh, I'm actually—I have just finished a reader on the Holocaust. That is a ah. collection of, of what I think are the best historical works on the subject, and it's going to be called How Could This Happen? Uh, I'm waiting for the page proofs to arrive any day now, and, and as soon as I finish that, I'm also going to try to produce a textbook on the Holocaust, based on the course that I've taught at Northwestern for 30 years, and that I will teach for the last time next year.
0: Excellent. And John? I'm working on a book presently on the topic of torture, uh, but it has uh, connections directly back to the Holocaust. One of the classic uh, essays that, that comes out of the Holocaust experience is um, by a, a philosopher, uh, survivor named Jean-Amarie, um, and in one of his uh, collections of essays, there is a, an essay simply titled, Torture, where he reflects on uh, what happened to him um, when he was arrested by the Gestapo in Belgium, and eventually he was deported to Auschwitz. But uh, using that as a point of departure, uh, I'm reflecting on uh, torture, and um, not just sure where all that's headed. But uh, that's an issue that has connections to the Holocaust, but also relevance for the world in which which we live presently. Um, I'm also um, beginning to think about uh, collecting a series of essays that I've been working on over the past four or five years and to see if uh, those might possibly um, be converted into a book, but that's a little bit further down the road.
1: Well I look forward to those appearing and for me getting a chance to uh, to read them. For now, I want to say thank you so much to John Roth and Peter Hayes for being on New Books and Genocide Studies, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to them again sometime. So thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Kelly.
2: My pleasure. You've
1: been listening to an interview with Peter Hayes and John Roth, editors of the new Oxford Handbook of Holocaust Studies. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Jenny Burnett about her new book, Genocide Lives in Us, Women, Memory, and Silence in Rwanda. Until then, I hope you have a great month.